Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7? If you're new with us, we are working our way through 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And when you find it, just kind of look up here for a minute. Um, let me just start by saying this. If you're like me, you're sick to death of the empty promises that politicians make to us in an attempt to get our vote or maybe to uh, placate us to go along with their agenda in some way, right? Over the years, I have heard politicians make promises they couldn't possibly keep. My economic plan will cut the deficit in half. Uh, my plan will create 25 million new jobs. And one of my personal favorites, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. <laughs> I don't know if these promises are simply wishful thinking to placate us or flat-out lies to deceive us, and I'm leaning towards the latter. But what these falsehoods do is they diminish the power of a promise in our minds and the trust for our leaders in our hearts. Ultimately, it causes us to believe there is no one in power that we can trust to make good on their promises because they're all liars. They're all liars. And no matter what they say to us, they're not going to come through. They're not going to keep their promise and so on. A promise is a powerful thing. If you think about it, a promise gives hope. And hope is something we can't live without. The devil knows that and he doesn't want us to hope in God's promises. Therefore, he puts lies in the mouths of so many people. Our nation has become a nation of liars. And our politicians are leading the way. And their lies are diminishing the power of a promise. Uh, they're robbing us of hope for the future because everything they tell us seems to be a lie. Now, that brings us this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 7 which I believe is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, containing one of the greatest promises God has ever given. Let me lay some groundwork so that you understand why I believe this to be true. As you read the Bible, you will see numerous covenants that God has made with mankind. Covenants in the Bible are very important uh, to understand since God calls himself a covenant-keeping God. What exactly is a covenant? Well, a covenant, very simply, is a promise. A promise. There are two basic types of covenants in the Bible, conditional and unconditional covenants. A conditional covenant is a promise that has conditions attached to it. So this is a covenant where God promises to do something for a person or a people that he is making the covenant with if they will do their part by obeying whatever he has said for them to do. So it's a two-party contract. God lays out his part, we have a part. If we are faithful in keeping our end of the covenant, then God will keep his. An unconditional covenant is simply that. It's a promise that has no conditions attached to it. Now, there are many promises in the Bible, both conditional and unconditional, but only seven major covenants. Let me read them to you. The Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, what's called the land covenant, where God promised Israel a land, the promised land. The Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and then the New Covenant. I don't have time to get into all of these. I just throw them out for your consideration. You can Google Biblical Covenants. And there are fine scholars on uh, the Internet that have written about these. Dr. Arnold Frankenbaum is one. 
uh, Jewish believer in Christ, and he lays out these covenants in detail. So you can study these on your own. I will say this, four of these, the Abrahamic, Land, Mosaic, and Davidic, God made with the nation of Israel. Of those four, three are unconditional in nature. That is, regardless of Israel's obedience or disobedience, God will still fulfill these covenants with the Jewish people. One covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is conditional. That is, this covenant will bring either blessing or cursing, depending, that's the condition, on Israel's obedience or disobedience to the laws of God. Uh, but of these three remaining covenants, the uh, Adamic, Noahic, and New Covenant, they are made between God and mankind in general. They're not limited to the nation of Israel. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because 2 Samuel 7 is the chapter where God institutes the Davidic covenant. Very important covenant, as we're going to see, because you're going to be sitting there thinking, wow, what does this have to do with me? Hang in there, okay? I'll show you. But 2 Samuel 7 is divided into two main sections. We'll look at the first one today, God's promise, and then we'll look at the second one next week, David's prayer. So first of all, God's promise, starting off with David's request, starting with verse 1. Now it's, it came to pass when the king, David, was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So what's going on? Well, as we've already seen in our study of 2 Samuel, David has recently conquered the Jebusite stronghold of Jebus. And he's renamed it Jerusalem, made it his hometown and the capital of the nation. After doing that, he then commissioned Hiram, king of Tyre, to build him a beautiful cedar palace. A lot of cedars up in uh, Tyre, Lebanon, and uh, the uh, Lebanese, the, you know, what we call them today, were very skilled with timber and things. And so David paid Hiram to come build him a new cedar palace on Mount Zion. After that, he goes and gets the Ark of the Covenant, which we've talked about. It was in uh, the house of Abinadab for 70-plus years, and he eventually gets it back to Jerusalem. He wants to put it uh, there in Jerusalem because he wants the Jerusalem to be the focus of a new wave of worship for God. God. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, as we've already said. And so he takes it, and he puts it uh, up the hill from his palace on top of Mount Zion in a tent he had constructed for it. Where the tabernacle was that we studied in Exodus uh, with the golden walls and all that God commissioned Moses to build for the ark, we're not, we don't know. We don't know what happened to it. I don't see that this was it. This was a special tent David made for the Ark of the Covenant, and he made it uh, to sit up the hill from his palace. You remember reading the Psalms, okay? Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may dwell in his holy place, he was clean hands and a pure heart. David's talking about making the little trip up the mount to the tabernacle where he was worshiping God. Okay, so it was up on that mount there. And uh, one night, David is now in his new beautiful palace, cedar palace, got to smell great, right? Uh, you know, he's in his new cedar palace, kicking back, enjoying all the fruits of his, of his labors. He's been a warrior all of his life. And he has defeated many enemies, amassed much wealth. And now he's deciding, you know, David's about 55 at this point. So he's deciding, look, I'm going to start kicking back a little bit. I'm going to enjoy, you know, life a little more. Uh, builds himself a beautiful new palace. And he's sitting in there and enjoying himself. 
and he looks out the window and sees up the hill, there's God living in a tent. And he feels bad about that. He starts feeling guilty. So he calls in Nathan, the prophet, David's spiritual advisor and good friend, and basically makes this request to Nathan. Nathan, I want to build God a house. I mean, here I am dwelling in a new house. I got a beautiful palace, and here the king of the universe is still in a little crummy tent. I want to build God a house. Now, Nathan initially thinks it's a great idea. He says, go for it, David. He said, verse 3, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Problem was, Nathan didn't know if the Lord was with David in this. Nathan didn't really inquire of the Lord. I mean, he was excited. He loved David. He wanted to support his friend in this. It was a good thing, right? I mean, how can you, why pray about something that's such a, you know, slam dunk? You know, it's so right. It's so good. We don't have to pray. Go back a couple chapters, listen to the message we did. Why pray? It's a no-brainer. Why do I have to pray? It's such a good thing. Obviously, God's in it. We don't know that. We don't know that, right? So we see David's request and then God's response. First of all, he prohibits David from building him a house. Verse 4, But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up, up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle wherever I have moved, uh, moved about with all the children of Israel, uh, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, Did I ask you to do it? All right, I mean, <laughs> thank you very much, but I didn't ask you to build me a house of cedar, right? Look, there's a lot of things that people think would be good to do for God. And listen, building him a new house, in our context, a new church building, leads the list, doesn't it? There's a lot of pastors who, well, I'm not so sure a lot of them really have the right motive. I don't know their heart, but um, a lot of them are wanting to build a, a new sanctuary, a new church building, because they've adopted the mindset, if you build it, they will come. And there's a lot of pastors who have strapped their churches with a lot of debt uh, without really praying about it, just assuming it's a good thing. It's a good thing. One church in the area uh, at one point was up to 900 people. They've dropped down to three or 400. And the new pastor's idea was, well, let's put a big addition onto the church. That will cause people to come. You know what? A lot of times these ideas, they're really not rooted in prayer. God's not leading. Uh, I've heard of more than one pastor who drove the church off of a cliff because they went ahead and uh, in, a, in a step of faith, quote unquote, uh, purchased a gigantic building to renovate and make it their church, and it just bankrupted the church. So we learn from this passage, guys, that just because we have good intentions doesn't necessarily mean God wants us to do it. We have to always pray for direction before we do anything for him. But, you know, again, Nathan loved David. And it was his friend, wanted to support him. David was all excited about uh, building out a house. And so Nathan, you know, jumps on board and says, David, that's great. Go for it. But what Nathan, as a spiritual man, should have said, and Nathan was a good guy. Nathan was a good guy. What he should have said was, David, that's a great idea. Wow, that's, that's a wonderful idea. But, you know, let's pray and find out if God wants you to do it. Nathan didn't do that. And so that night the Lord had to correct him. 
and sent him back to David, telling him God had refused his request to build him a house. Now, we're not told in 2 Samuel 7 why God refused David from building him a house, why God wouldn't let David do it. We are told in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8, and we read that the reason that God did not want David to build him a house is because, David, you are, you're a man of war. You've shed a lot of blood in your life. And the man who builds me a house has to be a man of peace. Because this house, this temple, will be a place of peace where God and man come together, where differences are reconciled, where sin is atoned for, and where we have fellowship. That's the God of peace. That's our God wants to have fellowship with humanity. He wants them to come to his son and receive him that they can be one and have peace. That's what the temple was all about. It represented the peace between God and man. David, you're a man of war. Thank you very much, but you can't do it. You can't do it. Now, here's an important lesson, kind of a side lesson to take from all this. When God told David he couldn't build him a house, what did David do? Throw his hands up in the air and say, well, then fine. Then forget the whole thing, God. You know? No, what did David do? Well, 2 Chronicles 29 tells us he spent the rest of his life gathering the material Solomon would need to build God a house. In other words, God said, David, you can't build me a house. David said, fine, Lord, but you know what? I'm going to spend the rest of my life gathering the materials. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm, I, my heart is in this. And you know what? If you're telling me I can't do it, then I'm certainly going to try to do whatever I can to help uh, my son uh, fulfill my dream. Look, if you have a heart to do something for God and he tells you no, say you have a heart for the African people, and, and, and you just have always wanted to be a, a missionary in Africa, but God closes the door. You just, it's just not maybe the right timing, so no right now, maybe no at any time. What do you do? Well, you don't just do nothing. You do whatever you can do. So you gather money. You gather materials to send to missionaries who are in Africa to help in the work. Didn't Jesus say, if you give a cup of cold water to one of my disciples in my name, you'll receive your reward? Anything we can do to, to help the work of God Whatever it is, if we can't be physically over there in the mission field, we can certainly pray and send money and send materials to those who are there, and God will reward us as if we had gone. In fact, in another part in the uh, Old Testament, God says, David, David was recounting this, and God said to David, David, you can't build me a, ho a house, but because it was in your heart to do it, I'm going to reward you as if you had done it. Our God is so awesome, isn't he? I mean, we can't do everything we want to do for God. But you know what? In my heart, it's like, if, if I could, I would do that. God says, I can see that. I see that. That your heart is for me. That you want to serve me. Now, you can't do this literally, but you can pray and you can help in other ways. But I'm going to reward you as if you had done it. I, I love that. So first of all, God prohibits David from building him a house. But secondly, and this is to the point of our message this morning, God promises to build David a house. Verse 8, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep. You were nothing, David, a shepherd boy. And I, and I took you and I made you ruler over my people, over Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. 
Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they uh, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and uh, move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Let me stop there. God is looking forward in time. All right, right here in verse ten, He's looking forward in time. Because right now Israel was in the land. They had peace. David had conquered all the enemies. So what's God talking about? I will appoint a place for my people. I will, you know, take away the reproach of their enemy. He's talking about ultimately. This is going to dovetail with the promise he's about to give David. All right? But God is saying there is coming a time. The peace that you know now, it's not going to last. We know under the Antichrist, the Jews will be scattered throughout the world. But when the Messiah comes back, he will establish a kingdom he will plant them in their land securely and safely. So ultimately, that's what's in view in verse 10. But now he comes back to the present. Verse 11, Since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now let me stop there and clarify. David wanted to build God a house, a physical building, a temple to dwell in. God responds by telling David that even though he can't build him a house, God promises to build David a house instead. This house was not a building. It was a dynasty. A dynasty of kings that would come from David and would culminate in the birth and coming of the king of kings. The greatest king who would ever live, a descendant of David. We know him, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Isaiah 9. You all know this. It's, we're getting into Christmas time. We all read this at Christmas. Of course, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 talk about this very thing, how God was going to send one particular king, a descendant of David, who would be the king of kings. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to be the king of an earthly kingdom. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's a promise that God made to David, basically. And we see it affirmed in numerous places in the Old Testament. But going back to 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, God is still speaking to David. He said, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed, your son after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be, a, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever, according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Again, understand what's going on. The promise of God to build David a dynasty would start with his son Solomon. That's what verses 13 to 15 are talking about. But then, as we just said, often when God is giving a promise or a prophecy, he gives a short-term partial fulfillment and then scopes out to the long-term 
ultimate fulfillment. Solomon was the short-term fulfillment. Of course, he was going to blow it and be corrected by God. But ultimately, a descendant of David would come. His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom ruled over by this everlasting king. That's what verse 16 is talking about. Now, guys, as I said earlier, in 2 Samuel 7, God institutes the Davidic covenant. Let me sum it up for you. Let me sum it up for you. This covenant contains several promises that God gave to David. Number one, David is promised an everlasting dynasty. One of David's, number two, one of David's own sons, Solomon, of course, would be established on the throne after David and would build God a house or a temple. Solomon would be disciplined for disobedience. Well, we know that from Solomon's life, that he started out good, but um, he kind of drifted, okay? And uh, he did the very thing God had forbidden. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, The kings of Israel are not to multiply wives to themselves, gold for themselves, and horses uh, to themselves. Horses speak of military strength. You have a lot of military strength. You tend to put your faith in your military strength and not in the one who you should put your faith in, God Almighty. Solomon did all of these things, and he multiplied to himself a lot of foreign wives. And the Bible says they turned his heart away from the Lord. And for many years, he actually, if you can believe this, got into idolatry. He walked away from God. But God did not forsake him. God pursued him. And towards the end of his life, Solomon comes back to God. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. So the Lord said, you know, your son Solomon, I will discipline for disobedience, but God will not, would not remove, uh, the Lord is saying, but I won't remove my loving kindness from him or the kingdom from him as I had done with King Saul. Number three, another part of this Davidic covenant, God promised David the throne of David's kingdom was to be established forever. The throne of his kingdom would be established forever. Number four, the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but ultimately would be God's son. That's kind of implied in the text there. We know, of course, from other places it was very clear Messiah was going to be the son of God, but um, that uh, Messiah would be David's descendant and ultimately would be God's son who would reign forever, thus fulfilling, listen, the promise that uh, God gave David that his kingdom would never end. Uh, you're sitting there thinking, great, wonderful, glad I came this morning. But what does all this have to do with me? <laughs> yeah, come on. The Vedic Covenant, I mean, good heavens, what am I, in a seminary class? I mean, why do I have to know this? What, what is the purpose in my life of knowing about the Davidic Covenant? Look, it means a great deal. Because, guys, listen to me. It gets into the character of God and whether or not he is trustworthy trustworthy when it comes to promises as we live in a world of lies our leaders embodying that to the nth degree when it comes to promises the only promise we can put our faith in the only promise that we can cling to and put hope in are the promises that god gave to us proving that God can be trusted when he gives us a promise. That's why, guys, he refers to himself as a covenant-keeping or a promise-keeping God. He says that because it affirms his trustworthiness. His trustworthiness. And that's why I call 2 Samuel 7 one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because it contains one of the greatest promises God ever gave. Now, did he come through? 
Did God keep his promise to David? Well, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Years have passed. And I think the context was Solomon was dedicating the temple. He had finished it, was dedicating it, and he offers a prayer to God. So 1 Kings 8 verse 20. Again, Solomon speaking. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Verse 24, he's talking now to God. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father, and have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Well, yeah, God came through and did everything he had promised Solomon he was going to do. But the promise that God gave to David went far beyond Solomon, as we just said. In fact, in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, we read, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever. Well, Solomon didn't live forever. He died. He's talking about Messiah Jesus, of course. Your seed, David, I will establish forever through your descendant, the Messiah, and build up your throne to all generations. Listen to me, guys. This is important. Everything God has promised us, the devil will try to rip us off from, and a lot of it gets into the condemnation we buy into. There's a lot of Christians who never really enjoy all the promises of God. Why? Because they've let the devil convince them, condemn them to the point where they feel, well, why would God give this to me? I don't even think I can ask him to do this for me. I'm just so unworthy. Well, that's true. We all are. But God said that he has given us these promises and we are to come to him, right? But every promise God gives, Satan will try to rob us of. Even the promise God gave to David, Satan tried to rip David off. He tried to, as soon as God gave uh, this promise to David that Messiah would come from him and his kingdom would never end, immediately Satan went to work to thwart the plan of God and to destroy the promise that God gave to David. What do I mean? Let me just bear with me. After Solomon, the royal line grew worse and worse. Now you remember after Solomon, his son Rehoboam took over. He wasn't such a wise guy. He was a coconut head pretty much for the most part. <laughs> Solomon was a pretty wise guy. Rehoboam, not so much. And, you know, because he acted like a tough guy, the kingdom split. Ten nations uh, stayed in the north called Israel, two to the south called Judah. Uh, but the uh, kingdom of Judah to the south contained the real royal line. These were the descendants of David. They had a few good kings, that's true. Um, some honest periods of revival, but for the most part, the kings of Judah, who again were the descendants of David, grew worse and worse, more and more corrupt and idolatrous, culminating with one of David's descendants whose name was Jehoiakim, a.k.a. Jeconiah. Jeconiah was so bad. He was so influenced by the devil, so evil, that eventually God cursed him. God could take no more. And God cursed him and his descendants by saying that, look, Jeconiah, you nor any one of your descendants after you will ever sit on the throne of David ever again, cursing the royal line. At this point, the devil must have celebrated because in his mind he had won. I mean, the royal line had been cursed, which meant the Messiah could not rule as king. 
because God said no descendant of Jehoiakim would ever sit on the throne of David ever again. And I, I'm just thinking in my mind, Satan went, checkmate. I got him. <laughs> I mean, I could just hear the devil saying, I've won. I've won. No Messiah means no king. No king means no kingdom, which means no one will take away my throne. Now I will rule forever as the God and king of this world. However, the devil celebrated his victory a little too quickly. He didn't read the fine print. He does that a lot. As you read the Gospels, you discover that Jesus actually had two different genealogies recorded. One in Matthew chapter 1 and the other in Luke chapter 3. Why did God do this? And skeptics have jumped on that. Look at these two genealogies. They're different. The Bible is full of errors and inaccuracies. Why do you even put your trust in it? They don't know what they're talking about. See, the genealogy in Matthew's gospel traces Jesus' genealogy back to David through the royal line of Solomon, the line that Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, descended from. We read in Matthew chapter 1, as we read in this genealogy, in verse 16, it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the one uh, to, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Again, Jesus was born of Mary, but not of Joseph, right? I mean, Joseph was his stepfather. His real father, as we all know, was God the Father. This means that the blood curse placed on Jehoiakim and his descendants a blood curse that Joseph bore was not transferred to Jesus, who was not, listen, who was not a blood descendant of Joseph. But here's where we have to know the Jewish legal system a little bit. In the Jewish culture, if a man adopted a son, that son had full legal rights to everything his adopted father had. So the fact that Joseph adopted Jesus... All of Joseph's rights were transferred to Jesus Christ, which meant that through Joseph, Jesus received, listen to me, the legal right to be king since Joseph descended from David through Solomon, the royal line. And yet, as the adopted son of Joseph, well, let me just back up and say this. You say, well, that's great, but didn't God promise David that he would have a blood descendant on his throne forever? That's true, he did. And that's where we see the second genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3 come into play. You see, in Luke's gospel, he traces Jesus' genealogy back to David. But instead of going through Joseph and back through the royal line, through Solomon, he goes through Mary. All right? He goes through Mary. Mary was also a descendant of David. But not through Solomon, the royal line. She descended from another one of David's sons, Nathan. Not Nathan the prophet, but Nathan. Okay? The, the line of Nathan did not carry the blood curse. So Mary, being a blood relative of David, but not through the royal curse line, but through the line of Nathan, from Mary, Jesus received the literal blood of David. He was of the house and lineage of David, right? He had the legal right to be king. He had the blood of David to be king. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, isn't our God amazing? Skeptics read this and they just see a contradiction. We study this and we go, our God is huge. Our God is huge. Now, keep this in mind. Because we're talking about how Satan attacks the promises of God and tries to rob us of them. But you know what? 
our God will never be thwarted. When God makes you a promise, it, there's no extenuating circumstances. He says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. Oh, but Lord, I don't know how. It's not your job to find out how. Just trust me. We want meat, Israel in the wilderness. We want meat. We're tired of manna. We want meat. Okay, Moses, go out and tell them that tomorrow they're going to have, uh, you know, I'm going to give them so much meat, uh, it's going to be coming out of their nostrils. And Moses said, well, Lord, how is that possible? We're out here in the desert? I mean, how are you going to do this? And God told Moses, Moses, don't worry about it. I'll take, am I not the Lord of all the earth? You're asking me how I'm going to do it. Just trust I'm going to do it. Next day, here come these quails, right? Coming flying to the camp of Israel, okay? Just high enough for batting practice, about three feet off the ground. <laughs> you could check this out on your own. Each Jew got 10 homers. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm telling you. I'm not sure it was the same thing I'm talking about, but you can check it out, okay? Each of them got 10 homers. They batted these quail. Morning till night, piled them up in piles, dried them in the sun, made quail jerky, and they ate until it was coming out of their nostrils. <laughs> Amazing. But um, again, how does all this apply to me? We just talked about it, okay? Again, it teaches us that we can trust God. We can trust God. Again, in an age of lies, it's so wonderful to know that I can put my trust in God's promises I can have absolute hope and confidence in what he has said. I don't have to worry. If he's made me a promise, I don't have to try to figure out how he's going to do it. I just trust he's going to, do it, going to do it. And the Bible says, you know what true faith is all about? It's thanking and praising God for his answers even before you see him. Because you know he's promised it. It's as good as done. We could take it to the bank, so to speak. So what we do is we just start praising him for what he's going to do. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I have no money to pay the rent. We have no food in the cupboards. I've been out of work for a, a month and a half. Uh, Lord, you've promised to take care of us. I have no idea how you're going to do it, but I trust you're going to do it. Based on Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I can't tell you over the years how many times we didn't know where our next meal was coming from, our next tank of gas. But we just prayed and we just thank God and you you would be um, amazed at how God came through we didn't talk to people please help us you know, uh, you know we're trusting God but you know if you could you're not trusting God if you're begging people for stuff okay just thank him and watch him work which will then strengthen your faith in all the other promises he has given to you Oh, but again, I don't know how he's going to do it, right? I mean, it's, things look so dire. Turn to Habakkuk 3. Or you call him Habakkuk if you want. I don't really care. But call him George if you want. I don't I like Habakkuk. That's how I say it. You know, Habakkuk learned some phenomenal lessons in God coming through on his promises. So much so that at the end of his book, he makes one of the most incredible, sweeping, exhaustive statements of faith you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. Habakkuk 3, starting with verse 17. And, and again, the whole idea is that God can be trusted no matter how bad things look. 
even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. That's a pretty dire situation, right? What is Habakkuk saying? Lord, I don't care how bad things look. I'm going to trust you. You have proven yourself faithful and you've promised to take care of us. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer able to tread upon the heights or the high places. Look, it's wonderful to know that our God can be trusted to provide our physical needs. Jesus told us that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know what? Seek God and his kingdom, his righteousness. Focus on the kingdom of God, serving him. Everything else you need to live, God knows what you need. He'll take care of it. But don't live at the level of your physical needs. Don't, don't worry about that kind of stuff. Live at the level of the spirit and just focus on serving God. He'll take care of all the other stuff, right? God promises that. But as important as that is, guys, there's another lesson that we'll close with this. Another lesson even more important. The promise that God gave to David concerning Messiah and his kingdom, listen, has application to our life. So we talk about the Davidic covenant, which ultimately was a promise of the coming Messiah. And when Messiah came, what was he going to do? He was going to offer us eternal life based on a promise. That was our hope, right? I mean, the Bible talks about how we were without hope. We were sinners, lost in our sins. We, there was no way we were going to climb out of this pit of uh, hopelessness and judgment. It was, it was over. But God, because of the great love wherewith he loved us, sent his son, who came down, died on the cross, paid our sins, and is now offering us an incredible promise. If you put your faith in me, I promise that you will have eternal life, that you will be with me in my kingdom for all eternity. You see how the promise God gave to David dovetails with the new covenant, the promise that God gave to all his people in Christ? I mean, 1 John 2.25, and this is his promise that he has promised us eternal life. He's promised us that. Based on what? My hard work? No. Based on his grace. Grace means getting what you don't deserve, right? I don't earn heaven. I receive heaven. It's a gift. If I try to earn it, God says you can't have it. Because I don't want anybody boasting, you know, how you earned your salvation. I did all the work. My son died on the cross. He said it's finished. All the work was done. All you need to do is receive my gift, my offer of eternal life by faith. It's a promise I'm making to you. Now, I know that some of you might be thinking to yourselves, well, you know what, though? I, I accepted Christ, and I believe that I, I really was saved. But, you know, I have blown it so many times. I, I have fallen into so many sins over the course of my Christian life that I actually believe right now I've lost my salvation. I had a guy, first service, tell me he was listening to a pastor on the radio uh, this week, and the pastor was saying that, you know, if you don't measure up, if you don't live a holy life, if you don't do this and that, you're going to lose your salvation. Well, then God couldn't have promised me eternal life the moment I received Christ. First uh, John 5, 13 to 15, all he could have said was, well, look, you've received my son, but you know what? 
you're going to have to prove to me that you're worthy of this. So we're going to have to wait, you live your whole life, and we'll see that if at the end you have enough good deeds to earn heaven or not. He didn't say that. He said, it is a gift that you receive once you receive my son, and it's yours forever. It's a promise I'm giving to you. And people say, yes, but I, I really think that I've, I've lost it. I, I just feel like I, I've just I've lost my salvation. Remember we talked about covenants being conditional and unconditional? Do you know that the Davidic covenant and, of course, the new covenant were both unconditional covenants? They didn't depend on Israel or us doing anything. You just receive it. And even if you blow it, just like Israel has blown it, so a lot of Christians who think because Israel blew it and rejected their own Messiah, they forfeited every promise God ever gave them. That's absolutely untrue. You can't forfeit an unconditional promise. If God gives to you a promise that's unconditional, you have no conditions to fulfill. You just receive it and say, thank you. That's eternal life. That's the new covenant. It's unconditional, guys. You say, well, we so God just looks the other way when I sin, when I blow it? No. He does to you what he promised he would do to his son, Solomon. 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15. I will be his father. He will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor, my mercy, will not be taken from him. And folks, that applies to all of us who are God's children. I mean, look, I know that there are times when we will get into some rebellion. And God's trying to get our attention, trying to get our attention. But you know what? We're having too much fun doing what we're doing, even though it's against what God has said. So what does God do? Because he loves us, what does he do? Takes us to the woodshed, whatever that means, you know. He disciplines us because he loves us. It's never punitive, it's corrective. I discipline my kids. I didn't judge my kids. I didn't say, you're done, get out of my house, I never want to see you again. God disciplines us because he loves us. Like with Solomon. God is saying, he's going to blow it, your son, David. Your son's going to blow it. And I'll discipline him. But I'll never turn my back on him. I'll never throw him out of the family and disown him. That is a promise God is giving to all of us who are his kids. And because of that, guys, when we do blow it, we come to God and confess it. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, but I've walked so far away from God. I just believe I've just walked too far away from God. What did God say in Hebrews 13, verse 5? I will never leave you nor forsake you. As we have said many times, I don't care how far away from God you walk. If you turn around wanting to come back, you'll find Jesus is right there. Because he said, you know what? Even though you might not be faithful with the promises you make me, I will never, ever, Go back on a promise I made you. I made a commitment to you when you received me as your Savior. I told you I'd never leave you nor forsake you. Now you can walk away from me. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to keep pursuing you. And if at any time you turn around to repent, I'm right there to receive you back into fellowship with me. This is the promises of our God. How important it is for us to know the promises and to understand that our God is a promise-keeping God. And when he says something, he will do it. And doesn't that liberate us from the fear of not measuring up and being cut out of the family? Now that I know I, he loves me unconditionally, 
He knew everything about me before he adopted me into his family. We don't surprise God. He knew us. And because he knew, he knew me, before he even called me. And I know that he'll never disown me. He'll never cut me out of the family. Doesn't that make us want to live for him all the more? I don't live for God because I fear judgment. I live for God because he's so good to me. And because he says, Phil, <laughs> wow, I, I knew what I was getting myself into with you. But you know what? I told you. It's all wrapped up in what my son Jesus did. That's the faithful servant. And when he died and you put your faith in him and rose again, well, what he did applies to your account now. Now, I just love the Lord for that. Every day I thank him for his great grace. And let's just stop letting the devil condemn us. Stop letting the devil whisper in our ear, you're a lousy Christian, God doesn't love you anymore. That's absolutely a lie. May God give us great grace to cling to everything he has promised us and to walk in that promise. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the promise you made to King David. He was not a perfect man. We know that. And yet you made an unconditional covenant of grace with him, just as you made with us through our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And we thank you, Lord, that you've received us into your family You've washed us of our sins, and you've promised us an inheritance someday that will never fade away. So, Lord, we thank you. And uh, give us grace, Lord, to live for you uh, out of love because of all you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.